Welcome to the Something to Gnaw on podcast, a short parable-style devotional, usually. Right now, we're going through a crash course of the Old Testament, designed to give a basic understanding of how it's laid out, and hopefully pique your curiosity enough to get you to take the initiative to gnaw on Scripture on your own, and without being intimidated by such a big book. And if you're a seasoned student of the Bible, just look at this as a refresher course, and hopefully you'll begin to dig deeper into the Word. This episode is part two of the series, Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. The picture is black and white, and from the attire and glasses, I would assume that the picture was from the 1920s or 30s. The children are lined up in military-style rows and columns, evenly spaced, They were all white children, wearing white clothes. Every child stood at attention with their right arm extended upward, about halfway between straight out and straight up, and their palm facing forward. You can almost hear them shout the words, Heil Hitler. This would have made more sense if the students had been in Germany, but this specific picture I'm speaking of was taken in the rotunda of the United States Capitol building. I don't know about you, or if I'm even conveying the angst I felt when I saw this picture, but I had thoughts of Nazism, socialism, nationalism, communism, Marxism, and dare I say, racism. I'm sure there are plenty other isms out there that could be played into this situation somehow, but may I make up one new ism today? It's context-ism. The suffix ism is broadly described as a practice, system, or philosophy. As we work through Section 2, we're going to highlight this idea of context. In Part 1, we highlighted the idea of types and shadows and themes and threads that weave themselves through the Scriptures and are fulfilled in Christ in the New Testament. In this section, in addition to looking at the nature of the specific books, we'll be looking at the context they provide for other parts of the Bible and interpreting and applying the Bible in its proper context. So if that picture is all you saw, you might be raging inside that such an act would have been perpetrated on U.S. soil, much less the U.S. Capitol, and you'd be dead wrong to do so. Here's a bit of context for the picture, a bit of history that puts it in its proper context. At the end of the Civil War and during the years of Reconstruction, the physical fighting may have ended, but the turmoil between factions was strong. In 1892, a man named Francis Bellamy put together the Pledge of Allegiance and a salute as a means to unify the country, and kids in schools began to recite the pledge and salute the flag. This is a grossly quick and shallow review of the facts, but it's enough to clear the air on the picture I shared with you earlier. Those kids in the Capitol Rotunda weren't Nazis. They were expressing their allegiance to this country through the Bellamy salute. It wasn't until 1940 that, because of the similarities to the Nazi salute, that the Bellamy salute was changed to placing the hand over the heart. Properly understanding context leads to proper interpretation, which leads to proper application of the Scriptures. Last week, we hit the section of the Old Testament called the Law, or the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible written by Moses. 
And Deuteronomy ends with Moses dying and Joshua being anointed the leader to take the Israelites into the promised land. And with that, let's begin to crash our way through the second section of the Old Testament, the books of history. And for this episode, we'll be covering Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. And as it relates to context, these books begin to provide context for a lot of what is written in sections 3, 4, and 5, the books of poetry, the major prophets, the minor prophets, and then into the New Testament. And I would encourage you that when you read these, you read them as a story, a novel, a divine novel, but a story of God interacting with his people. So maybe calling it history is fair, or his story is fair. Anyhow, the second section of the Old Testament is simply called the history books. And at this point, God's law, his expectation of Israel, if you will, is literally set in stone. During Moses' time, the law was being rolled out or revealed, and at this time it has been codified, and it is the bedrock of Hebrew society. That said, these history books become a record of how well or how poorly the Israelites abide by the law. Additionally, it becomes a record of how God interacts with his people in both circumstances, both when he's pleased with them and when he has to discipline them. Here are a few keys to the book of Joshua. Joshua's name means simply, God delivers. Hang on to that one, we'll come back to it. To overstate the obvious, the taking of the promised land is a fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham in Genesis. His descendants are numerous, and now they have a land to call their own. The book of Joshua records many miracles, God's divine interaction with nature and humanity to accomplish his plan. First off, God stops up the Jordan River so the Israelites can cross on dry land. Next, prior to taking Jericho, Joshua has an encounter with Jesus. Yes, you heard me correct. We're in the Old Testament, and what in the world is Jesus doing here? Well, there are a handful of situations in the Old Testament where Jesus, or God in human form, appears himself. And this is to be expressly differentiated from the appearances of an angel. Theologians call this a theophany, or a Christophany. I don't have time to dig into this today, but it's a perfect topic for you to dig into on your own and in your own time. Or email me if you'd like me to dig into it in a future episode. The first battle in Joshua is the divine taking of Jericho, where the walls miraculously fall and the children of Israel are obedient to God's plan. And the prostitute named Rahab is a key component in the story. She's protected by the Israelites because she has in turn protected the spies that Israel sent in the first place. And keep in mind that Rahab is part of Christ's genealogy, a prostitute, and a non-Jew. We'll come back to that topic towards the end. At another point in time, God causes the sun to stand still so that the Israelites can conquer an enemy. And these are just a few of the instances where God stepped in and divinely acted to accomplish his plan of going before them and handing the land over to the Israelites. The book is divided into two parts. First is the military conquest, if you will, where Joshua is acting more like a general. 
The second part is the settlement of the land or the settling of the land where Joshua becomes more of a civil official, dividing the land up amongst the tribes and setting the initial boundaries for each tribe. At the beginning of this section, I mentioned that the name Joshua means God delivers in Hebrew. And we see the completion of God's deliverance from Egypt and from the desert in the ministry of Joshua, which seems pretty fitting. What is beautiful in this is that Jesus is the Greek equivalent of the name Joshua or Yeshua. And in the same way, Jesus is our deliverer, parting rivers and seas and going before us in battle and causing the sun to stand still if necessary, so we can settle in his promised land. The second book today is the book of Judges. In the same way that Deuteronomy transitioned into Joshua with Moses' death, the book of Joshua naturally transitions into the book of Judges with the death of Joshua. Joshua had been focused on urging the Israelites to hold tight to the Word of God, as Moses did. And the first chapter of Judges begins with highlighting the fact that the generation after Joshua kept the law. However, the generation following them failed to take hold of the baton, and the dark tone for the book of Judges is set. Let me read for you the transition from Joshua to Judges to highlight this. Judges 2.7 The Israelites served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and the leaders who outlived those who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. They buried him in the land that he had been allocated at timnath Sarah, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. After that generation died, another grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things that he had done for Israel. The Israelites did evil in the sight of the Lord. Judges becomes a sad and cyclical book that highlights how the Israelites forgot about the Lord the covenant, and the miracles that he had performed for their people. You see a cycle where several times the people sin in a big way. They face the consequences. They cry out to the Lord in their misery. The Lord hears them and has mercy on them. The Lord sends a judge to rescue them, hence the name of the book, and they repent, and they live in relative peace and security, and manage somehow to repeat the same mistakes again. Tim Keller does a series you can find on YouTube called Jesus in the Books of the Old Testament, and he makes an observation that not only do they perpetuate this cycle in this book, each time they hit a deeper and more depraved low of sin. The phrase that starts this book off is, quote, there came a generation who knew not the Lord. And that phrase begins the cycle. A couple of key characters in Judges that you may have heard about are Deborah, which would be the first female leader listed in Scripture, Gideon, who famously takes his army of thousands, which God then whittles down to about 300 and takes out a massive army, and good old Samson a long-haired hippie boy with an invincibility complex and a bad haircut. And as I say that, keep in mind that just because a person was a judge 
doesn't mean they were good people. Samson was an absolute mess, as were several others. Judges doesn't end on any kind of a positive note either. In fact, it's quite the opposite. It records a story that is so incredibly offensive I had originally planned on passing by it. I won't glamorize this story like Hollywood might, but when we talk about the moral decay or bankruptcy of Israel in the time of the judges, a brief outline of this story should make it clear. A Levite and his concubine, or a second-class wife, if you will, arrive in the town of the tribal area of Benjamin, looking for a place to spend the night. A man invites them to stay with him, and soon after, a group of depraved men approach the house in similar manner to the story of Lot in Sodom. But they demand the man send out the Levite so that they could have sexual relations with him. This is bad, but I would submit that it's even worse when the Levite sends out his second-class wife, his concubine, if you will, to save himself. And then the men abuse her so badly that while she endures the night, she dies in the morning with her hand on the threshold of the door. The Bible says that when the Levite woke up, he went out, found her, and told her to get up. Now I want to ask, how can a guy sleep through the night knowing this is happening to his wife? And how could he send her out in the first place? This is absolutely disgusting. I'm not saying it's right, but you expect this behavior from wicked and depraved individuals, not from a Levite. Not from a holy man, not from God's man, not from the man who represents all that is holy. To take this nasty story a step further, the Levite dismembers her body into 12 parts and sends a part to each of the 12 tribes. And in doing this, he arouses the anger of 11 tribes against the tribe of Benjamin, nearly creating a civil war that would have ended in the annihilation of the tribe of Benjamin. And on a personal note, I just want to say that what bothers me about this whole thing is not the men who approached asking for this Levite to be sent out. That kind of depravity in the world you're going to find. What bothers me and what I think relates to our current society is when you've got Levites who have such a disrespect for life that they're willing to throw their own and go to sleep at night knowing that their own kind, their own flesh and blood, their own wife, their own spouse, their own children are out being taken advantage of only to be left for dead. And they sleep sound, and it doesn't bother them. Strangely enough, that's the part of this story that gets under my skin. Notwithstanding the twisted nature of dismembering the body, and I, I'm not even going to get into that right now, but how is it that you can sleep through the night and sleep so easy knowing that this depraved culture is ripping your spouse, your children? How can you sleep knowing that that's happening? That's the level of depravity that we're talking about in the book of Judges. It extends to the highest rank of the priestly order. And after this episode with this Levite, the book of Judges ends with the statement, In those days Israel had no king, and all the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. 
Judges 21-25. Now, chronologically speaking, the book of Judges flows right into 1st and 2nd Samuel, which was actually 1st, well, there's no 1st and 2nd in it, but it flows into Samuel, but we'll get into that next week. But sandwiched between these two books is a little book called Ruth, which actually takes place within the time frame of the book of Judges. And if you're wondering if anything good could come out of Judges, it's definitely got to be Ruth. The book of Ruth is a short story that takes place towards the end of the Judges time frame. A couple of key factoids, if you will, in this book. It's one of only two books to have a woman's name attached to it, and it does so for a significant reason. Ruth is not a Jew. She's a Moabite. She married a Jew. And in a series of unfortunate events, every male in that family dies while living in Moab, not the vacation destination or the 4x4 Mecca in Utah. But Ruth returns to Israel with her mother-in-law, Naomi, where she finds, now there's a key word to be used here in the book, a kinsman redeemer whose name is Boaz. So why is this important? Boaz and Ruth end up being King David's great-grandparents. Let me put it this way. In the book of Ruth, you find a previously married woman, a woman who is not a Jew, perpetuating the bloodline from which the king of kings eventually comes. And this happens during one of the most debased windows of time in Jewish history. And she becomes one of four women mentioned in the Gospel of Matthew as a great-grandmother to David in the genealogy of Christ. The genealogy has a general cadence about it. Bob, the father of Larry. Larry, the father of Bubba. Bubba, the father of Cletus. Cletus, the father of Fonzie. But Matthew interrupts this cadence in the list to add Ruth, a woman who, by cultural standard, is not keeping the bloodline pure, notwithstanding the fact that Rahab, the prostitute from Jericho, uh, is on the list, or Bathsheba being on the list. Isn't it cool how God uses people the world would seem to look past or look down upon? So some look at the book of Ruth as a love story between Ruth and Boaz and their courtship and a great made-for-TV Lifetime Channel movie. But there's so much more to it. Ruth is a woman with a tragic backstory who does everything as best she can being devoted to Naomi and walking in her ways, including walking with her God, which to her would be a foreign God. And while the Jews have an attitude of entitlement because of their bloodline, God uses Boaz, a righteous man, who meticulously marries or redeems Ruth based on her behavior, despite her bloodline. And in marrying her, he did it completely above board and in line with the law, so that it could not be undone or challenged by anyone. God chose Boaz to be the kinsman redeemer and elevate the importance of behavior and obedience over bloodline. And in similar fashion, Jesus is our kinsman redeemer, who meticulously worked to save us, his bride in a manner that could not be undone, undercut, or challenged by anyone. Joshua shows us God as a deliverer, going before his people. 
Judges reminds us that we can't do it on our own. Joshua shows us what godly leadership looks like. Judges reveals what happens to us when we try to do things our own way. Judges reveals the depravity of man and his need for a Savior. Ruth reminds us that the most beautiful of all promises can come from the most unexpected places. And you can no longer say the name of Jesus without acknowledging his bloodline and the fact that God esteemed these women. And even in the Old Testament, he was redeeming Gentiles from the messes of their lives. And now you have some context to think about as you read through the rest of the Bible. That's all for this week. Next week, we'll dive into Samuel and Kings. I'd really love to rip through the rest of the history books, but I think that we may need to take a bit of time on Ezra and Nehemiah. And I don't know which side of the line Chronicles is going to end up on, so stay tuned to find out. With all that in mind, I pray and hope that you will add context-ism to the rest of your isms. Make it a habit to find the context of Scripture when you're reading. Till next week, God bless you.